Hello. This week's episode contains some incendiary language, so proceed with caution. Or maybe just uh, skip the part where we introduce Country Joe and the Fish, because that's exactly where it is. OK, here we go. Good day, beloved listener. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Robin Hitchcock. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get together to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guests today are the Mojo editor, John Mulvey. Hello, Andrew. And Robin Hitchcock. Hi, Andrew. (laughs) Hello. Robin is one of the most unique and influential singer-songwriters this country's ever produced. Most people, I think, first became aware of him with post-punk neo-psych four-piece The Soft Boys, responsible for the sneering, humid, surreal pop masterpiece Underwater Moonlight from 1980. He was white and she was white as only statues are. Fifty years they stood there looking stupid by a jar. One night in mid-August when the Moonlight got too strong They climbed off their pedestal Underwater Moonlight by The Soft Boys Written by Robin Hitchcock, Kimberly Rue, Matthew Seligman and Morris Windsor Released on Matador Records He then left to become an insanely creative solo artist Heading for Paradise or Basingstoke Via Barrett, Bowie, Ferry and the strange four corners of life, sex, death and nature that most of us never notice. He's collaborated with everyone from R.E.M. and John Bryan to The Decemberists and Yola Tengo and has released a series of endlessly curious and inventive solo albums, including recognised masterpieces such as 1984's I Often Dream of Trains, 1990's I, and, who knows, his next album, Shuffle Mania, which is out in October. Thanks for coming in, Robin. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to be here. <laughs> and the, the record you've brought in to talk about today is Electric Music for the Mind and Body by Country Joe and the Fish, released in 1967 on Vanguard Records. Now, before we start, I think we should play a little clip of how I first heard Country Joe and the Fish and why I think myself and a lot of other people subsequently avoided the group for years to come. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam, did you help again? Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. Country Jimmy's Fish. I feel like I'm fixing to die. Written by Joe McDonald. Released by Vanguard Records. How did you first discover Country Joe and the Fish, Robin? And was that clip from, famous clip from the film Woodstock? part of it no i first discovered country joe and the fish when it, the fish cheer was give me an f give me an i give me an s give me an h what's that spell fish yeah i was 15 i thought that was brilliant yeah and in moments of intoxication i still do it um <laughs> it, uh country joe and the fish had actually been going the fish was actually not the name of the band, there was the nickname of Barry Melton, the yeah. guitarist, who's probably the most striking musical feature of Country Joe and the Fish. Um, I, was, I was 14 in 1967, so, um, you know, that stuff just went straight into my frontal lobe, into my glands. You know, I've just been walking 1967 ever since, really. Is it a record that you'd read about or someone had played to you or was hanging on the wall in the shop? I mean, how, um, did, how did it arrive? It arrived like a lot of things did. I was in this strange penitentiary for bright, uh, well-off children um, and uh, boys, that is, and it was a sort of comprised a series of red brick stalags into which you were shut between the hours of 
six in the evening and and uh, eight in the morning unless you could grab the keys from the subterranean lair where a man named Mr. Trotter dwelled who would wake the youngest boy in the house at 7.15 in the morning and mutter Phillips into his ear, at which point he had to go and say that to the rest of the house. In other words, I'm a public school casualty, boarding school casualty. The best thing about being at boarding school, the one I was at, which was a, 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 an intellectual snob school rather than a social snob school, was that... Um, you know, in the late 60s, what was really happening was the Beatles and Dylan. And and then, you know, it took off from there. Yeah. So when I got to the place at the beginning of 66, the, the hipsters were listening to jazz and the, uh, the jocks, the meatheads, were listening to the Beach Boys. And, um, and by the end of the year, everybody was listening to Blonde on Blonde and Good Vibrations and stuff. And then you get these... American kids coming in um, with their hard-covered records with the timings and the gatefold sleeves. I don't know if you guys are quite old enough to remember things like one-stop records, but the thing, the greatest currency of all was to have an American import several months before yeah. it came out. Danny Baker has talked voluminously about one-stop records because I think he worked there for a while. Did he? Yeah. He's probably almost my vintage, though. He wouldn't have gone the same route as me to yeah. getting into it. I, I mean... You know, we never, uh, we, what I'd never had was the indie record store thing of, you know, which all my American frolleagues had. But, um, yeah, so, you know, so basically some, some wannabe hipster kid in 1967 shambled up with a copy of Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die, the second Country Joe album, which is where the fish cheer was from, and it followed up with Electric Music, which was actually a stronger record. Mm, very much so. So basically, sorry, that's a long preamble, but it gives you, you know, where, I'm, where I come from in terms of music and how I, why this stuff is so deeply in my DNA. I should probably maybe give the good little time, uh, time to stop and give a bit of background on who Country Joe and the Fish were. They were formed in 1965 by two West Coast folk and jug band uh, habitués, Country Joe McDonald and Barry the Fish Melton. They were, I suppose, underground radicals, anti-war protesters, um, and originally formed the group as a sort of satirical mouthpiece for political protest. But with the help of lots of LSD, bass player Bruce Barthold, the electric organ of David Cohen, as you've mentioned, Barry Melton's weird electric guitar, and the fantastic hypnotic drums of Gary Chicken Hirsch and a bit and also um country Joe McDonald's uh, love of John Fahey as well um they develop into i suppose an early psychedelic rock sound which they which they showcase on this debut album electric music for the mind and body what was it about that sound that appealed to you when you first heard the record uh the overall sound basically the way it went together and so you had Bruce Barthol on bass and Gary Chickenhurst, who sadly just passed away on drums. Um, and you know they weren't Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker or any of those. They weren't. They weren't kind of rated as high end musos, but they were actually very good. They just used to make these sort of landscapes. You know, Hirsch didn't play a. He was a very un eighties drummer. As a lot of drummers were in the sixties, uh, it was it was not all about going do do do, you know. Yeah. So you'd have these rolling toms and and bits of snare and stuff, and but they were obviously listening to each other. And then you had um, David Cohen, who played you know not bad guitar, and he played he had maybe it was a far feeter. It was a sort of yeah. tinny sounding but very distinctive keyboard. Like that, you know, yeah. and then incredibly high up in the mix, so you yes. do get that kind of sense of it's distorting the speakers. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all sort of right there. Yeah, and then Barry, who would just play, just um, what he just played this lead guitar that would go all over the place, but somehow always land on the right notes. But he was not because he was modal or something. He was never seen in the same league as you know. Clapton, Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, all the sort of guitar heroes that mushroomed up in 1967 and then triggered this onslaught of sort of mediocre metalloid three-pieces that when I started going to gigs, that's that's in 68, 69, 
it was quite easy to see you didn't have to write songs anymore. You just had to kind of have the right gear, look right, plug in and and just, you know, waffle on for 10 minutes. And um, so I became very cynical very early about everything. <laughs> do, you think, do you think that the way he played guitar was in some ways closer to someone like Sid Barrett? That kind of spindly, ambulatory yes. way of playing that felt slight, you know, wandering around the song rather than uh, yeah. sort of crashing through power chords in the power trio. Oh, of, yeah, no, I mean, he, 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 him and... Uh, my Barrow, I mean, another another of my heroes in many ways was... Yeah, I mean, I suppose they weren't people... People didn't point to, to Barry Melton or Sid Barrett. As, I mean, also, I'd say Lou Reed and I'd also say two guys that played in Beefheart's guitarists. Yeah. You know, and there were various, but there'd be left hand and right hand, yeah. Bill Harkle Road and whoever Antennae Jimmy Siemens was, but they had this sort of spindly... Yeah. It wasn't power chords. Yeah. Uh, they, they, uh, those were the guitarists I loved and emulated rather than, you know, trying to play like Eric Clapton, really. Yeah. It's a tradition that seems a, a step away from our usual concepts of virtuosity, I guess. Yeah, it's not... It, I suppose you wouldn't... I don't know. I mean, I even got to... I got to play with... Barry Melton years later at a festival in France and he became Barry became an attorney in the 1980s and uh, wanders around I think he still still walks the earth um, but you know he he still he could still play it, it wasn't it didn't have the same kind of manipulation that yeah. it had on uh God, if you listen to the end of section 43, I think when when they let Barry loose at the end, he just goes all over the place. And we should, and we'll play a little bit of that later. But I, one first track I wanted to play was um, a little bit of Not So Sweet Martha Lorraine. Because to me, it seems like the track that's perhaps most directly related to the Robin Hitchcock sound. We can talk a little bit about that in a second, but maybe play a little bit of that. Not So Sweet Martha Lorraine. Country Joe and the Fish, written by Joe McDonald, released by Vanguard Records. She hides in an attic concealed on a shelf Behind This could be Robin Hitchcock lyrics. <laughs> Well, he got there first. <laughs> but I'm sure I spent a long time trying to write that one. <laughs> You're still listening to the Mojo Record Club. It's not heaviosity, is it? It's spindly, it's spidery, it's kind of febrile. Yeah, there's no effects pedals. Yeah. Everything's recorded fairly dry, fairly flat, you know. And Joe is Joe was only ever really an acoustic strummer, so his electric guitar's pretty basic. Yeah. And um, Barry's, I guess, doing the other lot, and then old David would be playing that that spindly... But, it's yeah, it's all spin, spindly a go-go, yeah. which, again, is something I think I tend towards. I generally want my, my electric guitar to be far too toppy. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> I probably... I probably hear in my head what it isn't actually like if you record it, and I haven't put that very well. But yeah, I I, I, I have I have spindly tendencies, Andrew. It's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, the the lyrics. I was listening to Porpoise Mouth this morning. Um, While scores of glittering bugs and flies dance polkas on her limbs, I whistle symphonies of your face and laugh for your hair so fine. That's. That's also very meish. Yes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm, I mean, I mean, insects and kind of you know intersection of nature and sex and all that kind of stuff. You know. Well, the thing is, the that was that fantastic window when there weren't there weren't really any rules. So you had a yeah. you had a couple of guys who were whatever you know Jewish hip, uh, California radicals who were basically politicos and. And it was the civil rights movement and all that, and then LSD acid pot came in, and suddenly that really screwed the 
civil rights movement. You know, everybody was suddenly, oh, God, you know, it could have, could have been put out by the CIA. You know? <laughs> I remember Dylan saying, well, marijuana and LSD pacified people, you know. Well, Bruce so, Barthol uh, left, didn't he? Because he felt that they were concentrating too much on the music and not enough on protest. That they oh, were really? kind of more concerned about taking drugs and playing music than they were about, you know, smashing the system and, and yeah. joining an anti-war protest. Well, it was really hard to do both, I think. <laughs> I mean, I was just too young to do either, but, you know, yeah. these guys were all like my elder brothers, I suppose. You know, that whole lot from John Lennon through to Country Joe. And, and you know, they were all like older guys that I looked up to and I, I wanted to be that uh, <laughs> that older guy. And, and, and I suppose, you know, a lot of my generation did. Uh, Gord, yeah. But it's also there were there were one of those bands who I think those internal debates were endemic of something that was going on in San Francisco amongst the hippie movement at that time because there was that that kind of ideological divide between people who were quite self-centered I suppose in some ways and just wanted to live their own lives and be free of authority whereas mm. there was another camp I guess epitomized by the diggers who wanted to overthrow authority it's either it's either yeah. opt out or fight back and i guess yeah. maybe that was the dichotomy within the band about why he left and i yet, think but yeah. i think the more drugs you took the more likely you were to opt out rather than to fight back you know just because it was harder if you were kind of woozy which is hence that kind of sudden shift both both in the states and over here in 68 69 where people started moving out of the cities and retreating to the country yeah well there was that but there was also the the uh, you know the radicalization the, the stuff in the Sorbonne, i think and you know the yeah. grosvenor square riots here and street fat and man and all you know there was a big <laughs> yeah. like sort of you know burn your caftan yeah. Lose the sitar, mate, and it all got it got a bit aggressive. I mean, it was it just shows how much how much of a herd creature people are. You know, just like everybody does something. But yeah, that that, and if you know, you go to California today, San Francisco, which is a sort of in a way a dreadful place because it it was always a place where ideas came in. You know, that's where the hippies started, where the gay movement got going. But it's also or not got going, but really kind of. Became the first emblematic gay yeah. city, yeah. And then the first place, you know, the fallout from that, the drugs and AIDS, and now you've got you'll have a guy standing on on Van Ness, the intersection of Van Ness and wherever it is, and, and you know, begging like he's got no foot. You know, there's a guy with one foot standing there waving a street paper at cars to see if someone will give him, you know, fifties. It's it's kind of medieval, just the the way but that's that's also america yeah i mean, I mean cuz obviously also here, I don't know. san francisco has become a city where you know you've got privatized transport systems yeah. and kind of and everything is kind of the, the 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 you know the whole kind of silicon valley ownership and privatization yeah. of that city but on the outskirts you've still got those remnants of kind of you've still got extreme homelessness and you know, oh and, and then right in the middle you know right in the yeah yeah like, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. It, it's just it it is not a city of love and peace. And actually, when I got there in the mid-80s, I don't know, I, I was very nostalgic, so I went straight to Haight-Ashbury yeah, yeah. and stayed there and, you know, busked on the hay. Absolutely. Got to meet Barry Melton and, you know, did all my my yeah. time tourist thing. And um, I, I even recorded in there in San Francisco and I had girlfriends in San Francisco. I sort of, as a, as a tourist, as a musical tourist and, and as a... As a hippie, you know, it was very important to get there and colonise it. But that was that was my trip, man. <laughs> well, I would quite like to talk a little bit about the what I think is the unique instrumental sound that they have, and kind of something that we were talking about, sort of people like you know Clapton and everything. And it's that's a sound I think that is certainly in twenty twenty two feels like it's kind of aged incredibly poorly. Whereas I think a sound like Section Twenty Three still feels to me kind of unique and strange and a sound that where stuff can still be discovered in. We should play, Suze, we should play a little bit of Section 43 and then maybe talk about that and also talk about 
why that is an LSD sound, why it sounds like <laughs> LSD has been part of the creation of it. Section 43 by Country Joe and the Fish, written by Joe MacDonald and released on Vanguard. listening to this yesterday the three things that came to mind about it was the magic band who you mentioned earlier robin but also um the yeah Myst- the mysterians and i think it's that Fafisa sound being so far up in the mix but then also kind of sort of uh the birds around the time of fifth dimension and that kind of thing there's a, there's that slight um uh, Eastern sort of twang to what they're doing as well. There's a whole bunch of things going on simultaneously there in quite a creative, but also perhaps ramshackle way, which is very endearing. Or, I think. or you could you could say ramshackle, or you could say communal. One of the things that it isn't is it isn't virtuoso. It isn't yeah. kind of showing off. It isn't stepping forward, and you know there's no fear of the solo there. No, no, it's not virtuoso. But what it is 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 kind of unlimited because there was that point when they they oh they would there weren't any rules to what they were doing you know no one had had LSD before no one had played music on LSD um, and you're sort of translating that sense of possibility which is the thing I still love most about music from that era if you listen to the Birds or the Beatles or Country Joe or you know, early Grateful Dead or something is is just that feeling of, oh God, we could do, and it, it, it's unlimited. You know, we could want, we don't know how big this room is, we don't know how big this field is, we don't know how many of these grapes we can eat. Oh God, look at all this. You know, <laughs> and um, you can really feel that exhilaration in, in especially that first album and, and section forty three. They've decided to record about a seven minute instrumental, but. They haven't ruled anything out, which is what I really like. There's a bit where it just goes, which would would have been a year later would have been edited out. I think you know this would flow better if this was the eighties. They'd have just edited it down to two key sections yeah. and smothered it in digital reverb. You know. I, it was just that lovely, it's that sense of exploring, and I really get that off, but really just off the first album. They, you know, it didn't really go much further. They ran out of ideas, but just that. And and then there's a, a you know, the bit where they do some sort of arpeggios that drop down, but but there's also that, that teeny that sort of organ it does have a lovely kind of ominous feeling sometimes. Mm. And there's there's also that feeling of, or like, oh my God, what is this? It's about to appear. Look at that! Oh Christ! You know, um, Country Joe years, you know, because he's done a lot of interviews about because he became a sort of spokesman for the sixties and the yeah. hippie era. And he, uh, I saw one interview. He said, "Well, I don't know." He said, "At least a." He said, "It was a crack in the door." People could see what might be, you know, and that's all we've got is just this little crack that's open. But I thought that was quite a positive spin on it. <laughs> Did you, you, you talked about that, that sense of possibilities and exploration in the way that they jammed, I guess, and the way that they extended their music. But I think there's an argument that a bunch of their contemporaries, especially in San Francisco, exploited the open-ended possibilities of that music a lot more than they did and went a lot further out. So you mentioned the early Grateful Dead, but obviously by kind of 69, the Grateful Dead were were expanding their songs to 30 or 40 minutes in live performance. That, was, kind of... that was the dead. You know, they were virtuosos. They, they turned out, they were sort of a jug punk band to begin yeah, with. Yeah, right. Yeah. But Jerry Garcia became a recognised chops master you know and yeah. he's sort of seen in if you can see someone in the same breath he's seen in the same breath as eric clapton or you know those sort of i get that yeah, yeah he's jerry's a serious guy he just happened to be in this stoner band but but yeah you're right i mean that, that's what happens you you add competence to the mix and you get the dead you know uh 
Is that said as a as a fan or a skeptic or No, that's uh, that's said pretty neutrally. Yeah. I mean, I'm I I um I really like my fave dead stuff is American Beauty and yeah. Working Man's Dead, right. where they were obviously influenced by the band and they decided to there was that whole sort of, you know, bring it back down which started with Dylan's John Wesley Harding. Yeah. And, you know, 68 was the year of the retreat. And um but I've actually, after 53 years, just bought my first copy of Live Dead, and I'd like to tell the world <laughs> I have it. It's back home. So I don't know. Where do you stand on the dead? Um, I think I would regard myself as, at the age of 55, a neophyte. You know, I'm kind of still kind of new to them and kind of discovering them. I think John is the deadhead in the room. Yeah, oh, have you got have you got the cassettes? I don't have the cassettes. No, I joined the party too late. I got on the bus a little bit too late for the cassette era. I'm ashamed to say, but uh, I think I think there is a congruity between what you were talking about, Barry Melton, and even Jerry Garcia's virtuosity. Because one of the things that I always had an idea of psychedelia as when I was growing up was that it was very sort of dense and heavy and flangy. <laughs> and, and and space rocky and, yeah. and the idea of things being spindly yeah uh, and it, it just that didn't seem what psychedelia was probably because i was listening to indie rock rather than psychedelia oh. do you know what i mean and and so i think it's part of part of me understanding and loving the dead has been understanding that you don't need loads of effects pedals to make psychedelia and that there is a kind of an affinity to jazz, which I always really love. And, and as, play as you said, it. Eastern music as yeah, well, yeah, you yeah. know, and you can hear both those things in yeah. there as well. But I think I also, the, old, the, the reason I think it's been fantastic to revisit this record is I love that it's a kind of, has a sort of one and done quality, as people would say now, that it's kind of, you know, it's, it's protean, it's unformed, it's, it's optimistic. Yeah. And that was it. You know, in that a way, you, and that yeah. kind of, and it exists in that in that form and that form alone. And there still feels to be something very unfinished and unknowable about it, as you said about um, section forty three. When you put it on, you still feel that it might just that it, it, its potential is to go towards the horizon. Yeah, there might be other sections over the horizon yes. that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, or the, or the your 42 that we haven't yeah. that we missed before they arrived. Yeah. Here. Yes, the previous sections. I know. <laughs> God. I think under every every flange there's a spindle, you know. It is. <laughs> it, there is a lot of um it's what I call the wire between the ears and you get that Jim McGuinn, as was, uh, before he became Roger, and Sid Barrett, as was, before he became Roger, um, <laughs> uh, both had that wire between the ears sound, where, you know, one with a Telecaster, one with a, a Rickenbacker. Yeah. But the Beatles had it also on uh, Rain and um, uh, Andrew Bird can sing. You know, Harrison and Lennon were hitting the spangle, and I think... Some of that comes from LSD. Mm. Um, I never took very much because by the time I got my hands on it, I could see that it was potentially dangerous. So I, I never th I cast myself onto the reef of LSD and said, take me mother acid. You know, it was more like sort of, I'll go into this room for 10 minutes and then I won't go in for another <laughs> six months, you know. <laughs> but I do remember getting hold of an electric guitar while I was tripping and suddenly finding that sound that I just call the wire between the ears. You play a... You, the top E string is open, then you've got a B string, then you, then you hit a top E. So you're just getting a drone. And that's probably the biggest influence that actual LSD had on my musicality. Was and, and But all it did was I, I already loved that kind of music anyway, and I'd have probably played it without taking acid, but maybe taking acid, I saw how they got there. I just thought they must have had that, that drone, the jangle, the sort of, you know. And of course, then what you do if you, especially if you've got lots of effects like George Martin or so, you you invent them. That that stuff begins to sound very processed. Whereas if if it's you're being produced by Sam Charters and your Country Joe and the Fish, yeah. there's really there's probably just a bit of reverb and that's it. There's no delay. I don't know if they even compressed it. That's so you know it, it's very. 
and, and like some of that early Beefheart stuff, it's it's not it's a technological. It wasn't produced by people who had a lot of effects. You can you, you know? can hear the electricity, can't yeah. you? To yeah. sort of you know to quote Beefheart, Beefheart there's yeah. almost a sense in which you can kind of you can feel the hum that yeah. you're getting off the instruments. Yeah, yeah, God. But I also think that's a fascinating. Um, personal LSD creation myth because it because it's at such odds with what most people's LSD influence stories are because it's so earthed and practical in its in its applications and just understanding how a guitar sound works yeah. as opposed to you know seeing the future when you hear that yeah. chord you know oh not seeing uh, unicorns I couldn't no I don't I've, I don't think anything could make me see a unicorn except a unicorn itself <laughs> <laughs> Uh, although that's probably more likely now. It's the age of miracles. That's <laughs> why everybody's you... so happy. <laughs> Robin, did you stick with them, Country Joe, or did you carry on listening, or did you just think, no, that's it, that's, that was the... You didn't go into the Country Joe solo albums and try and find what might be there? No, I bought the first three records and it was obviously going off. And then yeah. the fish themselves disintegrated. I saw them at the Lyceum in March 1969 with Yes and Roy Harper opening. And uh, um, Yes were already terrifyingly competent. You know, mm. they had sort of five-part harmonies and things, but they were quite icy. Um, and Country Joe came on at like five in the morning and there were... Barry was there, but the other, Bruce, Chicken, and David had gone. And, yeah. and I was still young enough to kind of really want the original band. You know, I used to do drawings of Chicken Hirsch in my <laughs> school books. And, you know, <laughs> I used to stand there and think, I could be David Cohen, you know, and things like that. And, and um, it's really important when you're young. <laughs> and uh, But there was Joe and Barry, and they came on, and they did Section 43 and... Harry sang Great Balls of Fire. I'd never heard that song before. What the hell is this? You know? <laughs> but they, it was kind of, it wasn't great, you know. Um, I know I left, I sort of left the country Joe camp. I, I knew he was making records and you'd be t turn up at Dingwalls or somewhere like that, you know. He didn't, he was one of those guys who was at Woodstock, but it didn't. It wasn't a platform to hire things. Um, I think. I mean, the irony is, I think that the, that appearance at Woodstock is effectively the group's final lineup, and they'd kind of split up just before that. But he yeah. reassembles the band for sort of a last-minute gig at Woodstock. We've got a couple of Jan Janis Joplin's uh, the guys from the Big Brother and Big the Holding Company, yeah. and, and Barry's there, and then Barry carried on working with him solo for a. 10 years, 15, they fell out. But I actually saw Country Joe in 2017 at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco doing a re playing that this album live. So Joe would have been um, 77 and he had a short-sleeved shirt and a moustache and he was sitting down and he, he said, I can't really play guitar anymore, so this is... the." Kind of the end, and he just had a bunch of younger hippie blokes backing him up, and it, it was he was actually in better voice than I'd seen him in 1969. But there was there were only like 70 people there. It was tragic, right, and yeah. it was like this is Country Joe doing electric music for the mind and body, and it just it didn't have a profile. It was At just his home as well. And his yeah, home, you know, you'd think yeah. there'd be loads of ragged old yeah. Frisco dudes coming in one more time and things, but no, it was just sort of, um, yeah, God. And, and he's now completely retired, I think, because he can't play anymore. Yeah. And he's, he must be, um, I think he's just turned 80. Do you think that it was that some of that was down to the fact of what happened at Woodstock and that he became as a consequence of that movie, a hippie archetype or, or seen as a hippie archetype rather than as a musician? Uh, probably a fair bit of that. Um, I mean, he, he was a radical. He carried on being sort of radical yeah. in as much as if you've been a radical in 1965, can you still be a radical in 1980? You know, it, it, you, like it or not, your ideas become passe the way you see the world belongs to an older mindset and and you know 
I think also how the world sees him. It's very yeah. hard to find an interview with Joe on YouTube that isn't Joe talking about Woodstock. Really? You know, in the sense that like, that's what people came to him to talk to him about, you know. And so it's actually because I thought it'd be nice to get a little clip of him talking oh. about electric music. And yeah. Really, you know, kind of it was all about... Be, you know, being there at Woodstock and, and singing the Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die rag. Well, know, that which I is mean, a real yeah, shame. Yeah, that that is where he is planted, is where his flag is planted on the map of history. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, I think, I mean, I've just been reading a couple of weeks ago, I finished reading this new biography of Stuart Brand, the author of the Whole Earth Catalogue. Mm. And and there's, there's that... It feels like that other strain of San Francisco's 60s um, uh, kind of uh, revolutionary culture is far stronger than Country Joe's strain now. Yeah. The, the way that it evolved from a counterculture into what we now know as Silicon Valley and that, that kind of that strain of libertarianism which, which fired up a bunch of the original kind of counterculture there and then became, I guess, effectively codified and uh, monetized. I mean, it turned to the right. It turned or, to, it, or are they? Well, how well, do those people it, vote? Do you think uh, Trumpisters? No, I wouldn't say they're Trumpisters. I would. Say, I would describe them probably as socially liberal and fiscally conservative. So <laughs> that they will probably vote strategically based on that. I so, would do say. you think they acknowledge climate change? Potentially, but yeah. they're also buying homes in New Zealand as a consequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good move. <laughs> totally, got to get a house in New Zealand. Apparently it's very light here, but through the looking glass. Um, I went to New Zealand once. It was like being in 1964 without the trolley buses. <laughs> ah, you just felt like hard day tonight had just come out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm really glad, I mean, for that sake, just in terms of the note that we ended on, that we were able to talk about this album. And maybe a few people will listen to this and then go and seek out electric music for the mind and body. And there is no need to take LSD while you're listening to it, I don't think, because I think the LSD is is still in there. Oh, yeah, all, all the good stuff. All I mean, that's the thing. Another reason I was very cautious about acid LSD was that my heroes had all taken it for me, mm. you know, in a way they they were they'd gone over the top first. They'd absorbed the psychedelic bullet, and um, and it's in the music. Yeah, you know, you don't it. need to take drugs to to groove to revolver. I mean, arguably anything you have to be high or stoned to enjoy is suspect. <laughs> you know, it's it's up to the the artist, the shaman, to become intoxicated with whatever it is and then pass it on to the listener, you know? Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Right, brilliant. Thank you so much. That was great. I am Robin Hitchcock, and you are you. You're still listening to the Mojo Record Club. And now we're going to move into the little section where we talk about new records and new music. And, uh, John, what new music have you been listening to this week? This week, I have been listening to Heart Mind by Cass McCombs. Um, if you haven't come across him before, McCombs is a Californian singer-songwriter who started making slightly skewed, although perhaps not quite as skewed as Country Joe and the Fish, understated albums in the early 2000s, and has continued with a kind of discreet consistency ever since. He's collaborated with late actress Karen Black and guested in Phil Lesher's band, if I can drop in yet another Grateful Dead <laughs> reference, as I promised in the first episode of this podcast I wouldn't, but here we are. Um, but what reminded me of how great he is was a series of records he made a few years ago as part of a very mellow folk rock indie supergroup from LA called The Skiffle Players. If you haven't heard those records, I really can't recommend them highly enough. But I can also recommend a bunch of his solo records. And there's a new one out around now, his 10th, Heart Mind. And it was Mojo's album of the month in the last issue. The previous one, Tip of the Spear, Sphere, <laughs> Spear, Tip of the Spear, that'd be an even better title. <laughs> Tip of the Sphere occasionally sounded like the work of a Buddhist jam band, which is very much to my taste, but I appreciate it may not be to everyone else's. But Heart Mind is a little more straightforward, musically at least. And it really illustrates how McComb sounds that gift, like Elliot Smith, of softly articulating quite complex ideas in accessible songs. We're going to play one called Karaoke. 
Karaoke is underpinned by what is a fairly cheesy conceit. There's lots of song titles under the boardwalk, Stand By Your Man, Unchained Melody, even a bit later on in the song Your Love Is King, if I remember correctly, in the lyrics. And, it's, but, and I think the song's about how appropriating song lyrics is maybe an unstable way of dealing with the emotional currents of real relationships. <laughs> but, then, but then when um, Victoria from Mojo interviewed him around the album, he told us, I'm always wondering if our thoughts and expressions are being fed to us in some sinister way, and how do we really authenticate the true human? That's kind of what he said about karaoke, which is maybe not quite as straightforward as a cute song about I karaoke. Really, I really like plans. that. Yeah. Oh, God, there's nothing straightforward about Cass. He's a really, he's a sort of a man of infinite depths. You know, there's do you a know lot him, of time. Robert? I do know him. Yeah. I, I've run across him a few times. Um, my wife, Emma, introduced me to his LPs in the, in the mid-teens, mm-hmm. and then uh, we ran across him, and I ran across him the same time as I did that... Saw Country Joe, actually, um, 2017. We've hung out a few times and we have got as far as talking about Mm. collaborating and then I don't know if it would ever get any further than that. But he's always very... I don't know, I just feel like... I think he's deep, basically. Really deep, yeah. I've I've seen him... Have you seen him live? I have, yes. And When I saw him, he didn't say anything at all. It was like a classical recital. But the music is... I mean... I don't know. What, I don't know what he plays. I know he plays guitar, but the production is so. It reminds me of the way Brian Eno makes records actually sound like there's something you you want to you want to hear it, just because of the way it's put together. But you can't say what that is. You know, it's just it, it's almost edible. Cassis. It's really interesting. The how those records are produced. I mean, this one is mainly produced, I think, by that guy, Ariel Reichstadt, who who um, produced a lot of LA pop records, effectively, yeah. Vampire Weekend and Haim or Haim. I'm never quite sure whether it's Haim or Haim, I'm always ashamed to say. But um, The band? Yeah. Oh, probably Haim. Yeah. But uh, but he, he, bring, he brings that kind of little sparkle and pop gloss, but it, it seems fundamentally subverted when mm. he works with Cass about it because... He's simultaneously coming from quite a different, jammier kind of tradition. Yeah, it? yeah. He he generally kind of understates and doesn't. He's. I imagine Bert Yance was like him. I don't know. I just feel a sort of similar feeling that there's an awful lot of his roots go very very deep, and that he's saying and thinking really intricate, complicated things, and just sort of putting them over a kind of doo wop chords. Right, I think that's brilliant. Jan, just... um, Jansh is a really good comparison because there's a sense in which the kind of music is familiar and unfamiliar at the yeah. same time. Yeah, and like you, you kind of in the same way that that Jansh might sort of fall back on sort of folk tropes that sort of Cass falls back on certain sort of pop and classic pop yeah. tropes, but he's doing something with it that just feels new. So you get that kind of strange. I'm really glad you brought up Bert Jansh because you get that strange sensation where you think. I know this, I, f- I feel this song, and yet at the same time, this sounds co- seems completely fresh. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's well, a really I, nice I think comparison. he's a fan of Janch's. Yeah. Um, but there's, and, uh, just, it's also kind of, he understates, you know, he doesn't, his voice doesn't break a sweat, he doesn't yeah. shout, he never appears to be making a fuss about anything. Which yeah. means that you feel that you're discovering the song, you know, that nothing's yeah. being pushed forward for you to, for him to go, you know, here's the point that I'm making. You feel that you can get inside it and discover it yourself. He's definitely not chucking a bucket of giblets over the castle wall. Yeah. You know, he's very kind of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he feels like he's working in a tradition without feeling kind of deferential to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, right, Um the record I've been listening to is the new one by the Japanese experimental noise group Boris. It's called Heavy Rocks 22. Um, and Boris are an experimental three-piece. They formed in 1992 in Tokyo. Uh, they currently comprise the drummer Atsuo, the guitarist-bassist Takeshi, 
and the guitarist keyboardist Wata. And they've collaborated with experimental noise and drone acts like Sun, Mertzbaum, KG Hino. But they're also really adept at making celebratory, dumb heavy metal. I mean, I don't listen to a lot of heavy metal, but I do listen to Boris because there's always, I feel there's always something euphoric and celebratory about their music. They make me happy. And this is the third of their heavy rock series, um, the first of which was released in 2002. And basically it's a series in which the group kind of explore and emulate their 70s hard rock and heavy metal heroes. And I think they're a little bit like the Japanese jazz musicians of the 1960s in the sense that they're brilliant mimics of their heroes. But that's not regarded as a kind of criticism. It's basically as a way of kind of paying homage to people like sort of, you know, Sabbath or Blue Cheer or whoever they're sort of into. And um, this track is, I mean, brace yourself, it's loud. It's, um, it's called My Name is Blank by Boris. Boris, My Name is Blank, written by Boris, released by Relapse Records. Listening to that, the, the, the first thing I'm thinking when I'm listening to it is, where does this song sit? Is it authentic? Is it parody? Does it matter? Um, metal purists really dislike Boris, and they argue that they can't play, they can't sing, that their sound is, uh, we were talking about this earlier, their, their, their sound is always really toppy, and it's a really sort of, which they describe as a horrible register. And I think that's because they... They always have one foot in the world of experimental noise, so there's always a sense, like with their albums, that as well as getting the kind of straight-ahead metal tracks, you also get kind of, you know, really interesting kind of drone and noise tracks. I like the fact that they upset the metal purists, and I like the fact that there seems always seems to be something kind of untutored and irreverent about them. But I also like the fact that this song is called My Name is Blank, and it might be uh, a nod to the Swiss musician and member of Yellow, Boris Blank. Possibly, uh, yeah, I mean, could be, could be. Anyway, that's that's my that's my record of the week. Very confusing band, though. Yeah, band. I mean, I sort I sort of dip in and out. And the last time I listened to them, it was, it was only a few months ago, actually. And the record, I, I must admit, I've forgotten what it's called now. It was kind of a dank shoegaze record. It was very different to this. <laughs> that was that was W. That was W. It? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, which I which I, I have to say I didn't enjoy a great deal. But this is this was quite fun in a sort of. Uh, Subversion of Retford Porterhouse in 1982 kind of way. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's quite a new wave of British heavy metal. Yeah, they're, do, they're, they're, it's done, very... done in a slightly odd way. Yeah. Not, not in a wrong way. No. Just in a different way. Yeah, it's very maiden. You know, it's kind of, you can. It is quite maiden, iron, yeah. Yeah, Iron Maiden. Yeah. What, what, are, what do metal purists like? What's the grail for metal music then? I saw, oh, it's a good. I mean, a Sabbath would be the grail. For, would you say this? I don't know. I, th- I think, Maid- I think Iron Maiden's an interesting point, yeah. isn't it? I think we're we, we're treacherously close to talking about things that we, we don't, don't understand. quite understand. Yeah. Which is kind of my but, point. Yeah. I feel like in many ways, Boris are my one-stop shop. You know, yeah, yeah. I can, if I yeah. want my injection of metal, I'll go to Boris, and I'll feel that like I can, I can, they'll, I know that they'll have done, you know. 70s power trio I'll know that they've done yeah. something that sounds like Maiden and I know that they've done something that sounds like Sabbath and so that I like that eclecticism and I like the fact that they are eclectics and copyists and I think that's what the maybe the purists don't like they don't stick to a particular sound they kind of they're magpies but it's also it comes back to something we were talking about earlier with Barry Melton versus Clapton yeah whereby when you listen to a band like Iron Maiden, there is very overt technical versatility yes. there, like yeah. extreme technicality. Yeah. Whereas what Boris do is still, I think they're very gifted musicians. Yeah. But because they come from an avant-garde tradition yeah. to some degree, then the way they approach that music and the way they approach virtuosity is radically different. Absolutely. That's really well put, yeah. Yeah. I mean, virtuosity is possibly the enemy of inv- I don't know, once you've got a technical 
rat run to run down, the rat gets more technical. Um, you know, it seems like if you're going to invent stuff, like early Roxy music, mm-hmm. in fact, a lot of stuff doesn't know it's art rock till it's over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Velvet Underground posthumously became art rock. Yeah, and right. so did um, Roxy music. And uh, oddly enough, my old band, The Soft Boys, is now often described as art rock because nobody knew quite where to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're likely to come up with things if you... Either you don't know what you're doing or you don't know very well or you're trying to... I don't know, you're... Yeah. Well, like you said, being a magpie, yeah. you put things together that don't necessarily belong together. Because uh, if you put things together that belong together, you inevitably wind up with a really sterile genre like Americana, where basically it's always 1974 and punk hasn't quite happened yet. And as a denizen of East Nashville, you know, any bar you can go into, they're playing Cortez the Killer. It's just, and they're doing it brilliantly, and there's mm-hmm. a really good sound system, and there's thousands of great people in funky denims and beards and stuff, playing damn good versions of anything from, you know, up on Cripple Creek up to Zuma, you know. Yeah. But it, but it, but you're, you're just in a, in a bubble. The rules are written, the sound is made. You can't... It's really hard to bring anything new into it. Yeah. And I dare say the same goes for metal purists or... You know, even um, probably you know veteran Spangle Rock fiends like yeah. myself. You know, all right, this is this is what Jeff Emmerich did, and these <laughs> are the pedals that Rick Wright used. You know, and that's our little. This is where we lay our scene. It shall not change. You know, the and sun will go down on our safe house. <laughs> and I suppose there is a pleasure in that. If that's you know, if you that's what you seek out. You seek the perfection. You seek the meticulousness. Ness. And the security of getting yes. things... A, a world where you know that things are right. Yeah. But you're much less likely to come up with anything new. It, you kind of... I know, that's one of, one of Eno's things, isn't it? Honour your mistake as a hidden intention. Yeah. Of course, he's even, he's even anticipated that. <laughs> Bastard. But he's kind of... <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because I was listening to... You sent some tracks. Yeah. I, so I listened to two or three and uh, I, I was wondering... First thought, there must be about five of them. Yeah. You know, there's so much going on. Yeah. It seems like someone's playing lead guitar through the whole thing. Yeah. No one's playing any power chords. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's quite like Lou Reed's torture guitar in Heard a Call My Name. Yeah, I don't know if they're into that stuff. Oh, no, that's that, that, oh, yeah. that with the hardest Velvet Underground to take. I think the one on White Light White yeah. Heat. You yeah. know, but, but oh no, they're massive White Light White Heat. Fans. Are they? Yeah. Aha. Okay. I thought yeah. there was also a bit of kind of high time era MC5 and some yes. of those tracks. Yeah, as again, well. everything high in the yeah. treble. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I th- just going back to something you said, Robin, about virtuosity being the enemy of invention. Do you think that? It's, can, can you can you justify that argument with say jazz? I don't know enough about jazz. That's the thing. I'm, okay. I'm post jazz, so I mean technically, ah. uh, Coltrane, John Coltrane died in. 1967, and my sort of hipster um, gurus at school were all listening to Coltrane when I got there, but by the end it was all the Grateful Dead, so... Right. I don't know, do you know, who are your main guys, like Coltrane and Davis, Charlie Parker? I think they're quite good, yeah. Oh, I think... <laughs> I th- the thing is, once you're doing that, I'm again... I, is there a right way or a wrong way to do it? You, you. Once you get, I would say to, no. <laughs> in other words, could they have been actual terrible sax players and not brilliant sax players? And we wouldn't have known because what they were. Well, maybe some of the trad jazz <laughs> militia in the early '60s would argue that they were terrible sax yeah, Philip, players. Philip Larkin would probably Philip argue Larkin, that uh, yeah. Coltrane was a well, terrible. It's not what a bunch of bloke with blokes with beards are going to get together and play on a Sunday lunchtime, you know. But that might be their principle, the idea that you take things to a point where you don't know whether you're good or not or competent. Yeah. I, I mean, think... in a way, it's like punk, isn't it? There, there was that des- that Stalinist thing in punk about we mustn't go back to rockism, we mustn't use tropes that had been used before, which we in the Soft Boys loved. We loved harmonies and getting guitars. Just, yeah. You know, but it was... Um, yeah, God, they would probably say, you know, go on. Like Hendrix 
right at the end, I saw him at the Isle of Wight playing Red House or something, and he was, he was like, he was trapped inside this 12 bar, and he was trying to find some way out of it. Well, that's what I pos- re- retrospectively like to imagine I was watching. Who knows? But, you know, yeah. he... He was like trying to find something new in in a field that had been completely used up, you know, or, which maybe makes him one of the greats, you know. Well, which is also kind of in a way what you know the free jazz musicians would, would felt they were doing Absolutely. as well, and that you know that and that you know free jazz was a kind of a declamatory cry, as in you know sort of free George Jackson or whatever, you know, it was free jazz from its oh, bonds, oh, its mean, shackles, yeah, Archie yeah. Shep, yeah. Oh, the jazz was jazz was kind of freeing itself quite early, wasn't it? Or I mean, it was one of the first things to. It was the first stoner music. Yeah. Um, in our sort of culture, I think that point you were saying about kind of being anti-virtuosity. I think it's it it's all about even with kind of the with country Joe and the fish or with you know the the, the jazzes. It's all about kind of music that in a way confounds and asks yeah. you, you know and asks questions of you and doesn't place you in a safe place and is therefore probably hard to market yeah it's all music that is not in most times going to receive uh, any help from the business yeah because it can't you know but there, i mean I suppose again in the in the sort of psychedelic window there was a point uh where actual music execs were signing things that they probably could make no sense of um, it's that great Frank Zappa clip. Have you seen him talk about that? The, the sort of these people—they're no. not—they're not—they were not even hipster record company guys. These were the straight men in suits and shirts and things like that. But they thought they'd give it a go just in case. I, I'm not saying the words he said. Yeah. You know. yeah. One thing that did happen during the '60s was some music of an unusual or experimental nature did get recorded and did get released. Now look at who the executives were in those companies at those times. Not hip young guys. These were cigar chomping old guys who looked at the product that came and said, I don't know. Who knows what it is? Record it, stick it out of it, sells, all right. We were better off with those guys than we are now with the supposedly hip young executives, you know, who are making the decisions of what people should see and hear in the marketplace. The young guys are more conservative and more dangerous to the art form than the old guys with the cigars ever were. Uh, mostly, this stuff is unmarketable. So if you want to do something new, you can't necessarily expect to sell it. It's, I think it's <laughs> one know? of the reasons why people are still revisiting that area between like 1968 and 74 and finding new records and, disco- and you know, sort of in discovering kind of weird, you know, unheard of artists because so many records were being put out by record labels and, you know, there was that, in a way, a cluelessness of what would hit and what wouldn't and so everything was being tried and everyone was being given a record contract. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not even, not even just the private press stuff, but no, major label. No, that's stuff, what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. The major label yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Island. You know, there was like a, EMI had Harvest, um, early Virgin Records. Some of the stuff yeah. on like there were whole labels. Like all the little like DRAM they, and things like that. Of all Electra and things. Yeah. Like oh, Ele- Electra was a, was, a, was. God, I'd still like to have been on Electra. <laughs> I'd like to just post-date myself and find, I'd like to find an old Electra album by myself <laughs> <laughs> digging through the crates <laughs> I did this reality check you've been listening to the Mojo Record Club with me Robin Hitchcock it's been great to listen to such a confounding and unknowable record as um, Electric Music for the Mind and Body by Country Joe and the Fish and Thank you so much for bringing it in, Robin Hitchcock. Oh, you're super welcome, Andrew. It's been it's been great, really. It's been a real joy speaking to you about it. It's been fantastic. And about everything else. And about everything else, yeah. So you've been listening to Robin Hitchcock, John Mulvey, and myself, Andrew Mayle. And now we'd like to hear from you. If you have any questions, requests for records we should discuss, or guests you'd like us to have on the show, please get in touch. Send your voice notes and emails to mojoreaders at bowermedia.co.uk. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you all at the next one. You can all join in. Look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played today and how to sign up for the next episode. 
Hey folks, thank you so much for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Bless the lobster. <laughs>